You are listening to From Shadow to Substance, a sermon series from the book of Hebrews, preached at Hook Hesson Baptist Church in the spring of 2008. Today's sermon is entitled, Therefore, Jesus is Able to Save Completely. And now, Pastor John Boulay. Uh, you know, oftentimes when I, when I speak with someone about the book of Hebrews, or, or when you talk with somebody about the book of Hebrews, I don't think it's unique to myself, it's not unusual to get a reply uh, like, ooh, Hebrews. Kind of that. Like uh, uh, an acknowledgement of the complexity of Hebrews. Because Hebrews is uh, fairly complex. And so usually when I talk with people and they, and they and they express that, I think what they're really talking about is kind of the intellectual complexity of Hebrews. And let me explain what I mean by that. I think there are, uh, there's an additional layer of complexity in Hebrews that is not generally present in most of the New Testament. Uh, and when I say that, I mean Hebrews is written to Hebrews. And we're not. Hebrew. So for us to even, um, the first step that you and I have to make, which is an additional step than a lot of the, the teachings in some of the letters of Paul, is to figure out what is he talking about in the first place. You know, we can't even get past um, some of the writings of Hebrews. They just, they, they seem confusing to us because Melchizedek doesn't mean anything to us. Or when, we, when they start talking about the, uh, the priestly sacrifices of the tabernacle, right? We don't have a lot of basis behind that. So our first step is to figure out how is the, what is actually going on here? And once we get done with that, uh, our next layer of complexity in Hebrews is, um, how is it relevant? And generally what happens is, the more specifically um, out of context the teaching, so the more Jewish the teaching is, the harder it is, even once we understand it, the harder it is for us to apply. Because even if we know what Melchizedek is, right, we can, end up, we can come to the end of the day here going, well, so... So, so what, right? And so that's the challenge this morning, is that in some 25-odd minutes on a, on a day like today that uh, we, we navigate who Melchizedek is, and we also uh, realize that Scripture is useful. And it isn't just useful to them, it's useful to us, and it's active, and it's relevant. And so that's our challenge this morning. I kind of feel that in doing this, if I spend 20-some-odd minutes teaching you about Melchizedek, because I could, I, I could spend two hours, I mean, and I won't. But if I spend like 20-some-odd minutes talking about Melchizedek and all of the, the intricacies of Melchizedek, we will come to the end of our time, and I might have done a decent job teaching, but I won't have done very much preaching. So you'll understand what's going on, but there, we won't really have any, anywhere to push it. But I can't talk to you about Hebrews this morning without talking about Melchizedek, or I won't be being faithful to Scripture. Um, so there's our challenge. And our game plan this morning is, we're going to talk very briefly about Melchizedek, and, uh, and his role in Scripture, what the author's trying to do, and then we're going to just kind of take a brief departure from there, and kind of imagine, um, how might the author of the book of Hebrews make the same fundamental argument to us, uh, if, if we were the recipients? So that's what we'll do this morning, um, and we'll start that with prayer. So if you'll, if you'll pray with me for a second, then we'll get going. Lord, we just ask that your sovereignty would show up in the preaching and teaching of this scripture. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to bring new life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Okay, now we're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, so you can turn there. We'll read here, and we'll start reading in a, in a second. But here's a few things that we can already deduce from where we are in the book of Hebrews about the recipients of this letter. Okay, so um, either from previous sermons or from discussions, what we can know right now is that he, the book of Hebrews is written um, not to Jews, but to Christians. Okay, so this is not an evangelistic book trying to convert Jews to Christ. This is a, uh, what would you might consider a polemic book. This is a book of instruction to confessing Christians who were once Jewish about how to uh, mature and grow in their faith. So it's a book to uh, believing uh, Christians, or professing Christians at the very minimum, um, who were once Jewish. And the second thing we can know is that they're in danger in some way of drifting away from the faith. We've seen this warning time and time and time again. Be careful that you don't drift away. Watch out. Be on guard. And this wrestle. And when, when I think of that, when I think of drifting away, the notion that comes into my mind is kind of this Baptist notion of backsliding. But it's not, I don't think that's an accurate notion. So if it's in your mind, I kind of want to dispel it with the, the drifting away that the Hebrew church here is in danger of is not in drifting away to kind of like back into Greco-Roman paganism. They're going to drift back into their original worldview, which is Judaism. So if they're going to drift, the, the drifting that the author's concerned about is not that they start, you know, having keg parties in church. Their concern is that they're going to become, they're going to kind of re-Hebrewize themselves. It's not, it's not a word, but do that. Uh, and that's what he's worried about, is that they're going to drift back in to... Judaism. The writer's already expressed this a few times, and we, and we start here in chapter 7 um, with the first really lengthy and specific indictment against the church. So, so far he's been saying, watch out, be on guard, but he's building. When we get to Melchizedek, he's finally going to start really twisting the screws on, here's the specific arguments against the trend, the dangerous trend that he sees in the church. And he starts this with Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, we don't, can't read all the passages in Melchizedek even though there's only two, but Melchizedek shows up twice in Scripture before the book of Hebrews. He shows up in Genesis 14 where he's taught, mentioned in about a paragraph and then a thousand years later in Jewish time he surfaces in one solitary psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 110. So there's, there's about three sentences said of Melchizedek in all of Scripture back in Genesis and then a thousand years go by Nobody in any of Scripture makes any commentary at all about him. He's essentially a non-character until David writes this prophetic psalm, Psalm 110, about the coming Messiah. And that's when we, he resurfaces again And that line, he will become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews grabs that. So in a sense, we have uh, Melchizedek in the beginning of Scripture, in the middle of Scripture, and then the writer of Hebrews at the very end of Scripture says, I'm going I'm to use him as a commentary on what the danger of the Hebrew church is. So here's the, here's the background of Melchizedek. The account is in Genesis 14, if you'd like to read it sometime, but here's the story. In Genesis 14, there's a situation where this king from the east, come from Elam, comes in and he sacks the kingdoms of Canaan. Not the least of, or maybe the least of which, is Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, uh, So those kingdoms around there, the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah and some around, surrounding kingdoms, of that area, if you remember your uh, Genesis history, 
There is uh, Abram's nephew Lot has populated the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Remember Abram said, which land do you want? And Lot said, I'll take this land. It looks lush and green. And there's an interesting passage there. He says that he pitched his tents facing the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, which is a sign for trouble. But as this king from Elam comes in and sweeps over, he takes captive and, and, and all the spoils and into captivity, the peoples of these cities, of them is Lot and his family. So through the work of the Lord and through his support and, sovereign, and sovereignty, Abraham grabs some of the men of his household and they raid the kings at night in some kind of special operations attack. And uh, they're wonderfully successful. They rout the kings, they defeat them and slaughter them on the fields. And they return all the captives back to their land. And as they come back into Canaan, there is this man called Melchizedek who comes out of nowhere. And in a, in a way that I imagine the New Testament just have been, must have been totally infatuated with, he shows up to Abraham, Abram at the time with bread and with wine. And he breaks the bread with him and he drinks the wine with him. And then he blesses Abraham. And in return, Abraham turns to Melchizedek, this priest, and he gives a tithe of all of the spoils of war. And that's it. That's, our, that's the entire teaching of Melchizedek that the author of Hebrews is going to start with uh, here in Hebrews 7. Now he uses it, the, he has a permission to use it by the mere fact that David, in no uncertain terms, likens Melchizedek to Christ. And so... The bridge between Melchizedek and Christ has already been made, but as we start here in chapter 7, you'll see how the author goes on from that. I'm going to read uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without the beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. The first thing that the author is going to try to do is is build a picture, an appropriate picture of Melchizedek. So he talks about saying Abraham shows up and he says Melchizedek comes on the scene. And he, def- he explains the name of Melchizedek to you. So he says, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melech is king. Zedek is righteousness. He says he's king of righteousness. And he's also the king of a town called Salem, which is very close to the name Shalom. And so he says, Abraham comes back from battle and outwalks the king of righteousness, who is also the king of peace. And he blesses Abraham, and then Abraham ties to him And he says this, he goes, just imagine how great this man was. And he uses this device. He he says he's without lineage or without days or genealogy, without ends. What he's doing is in Genesis 14, the, the narrator in Genesis 14 never takes any time to tell you where Melchizedek comes from. Literally, if you're reading it, it's hard to pass up the the reading without feeling like, where did Melchizedek come from? I mean, I remember years and years ago. I don't have that many years, years ago. Um, I went to my dad and I said, do you think Melchizedek is Christ? Do you think he's a theophany? Because his appearance in the scripture is so remarkable. He shows up out of nowhere. And I, I do think he's a historic figure. I don't think he is Christ. But there is this almost Christ-likeness about him in the sense that there's no, there's no lineage 
that's presented, like there would have been with the, any other kind of priest. And the, also, it doesn't tell us what happens to Melchizedek. He shows up, the act happens, and then Abraham goes on his way. And Melchizedek is kind of this eternal being on either side of it. It's kind of what the author is trying to say, just by the way that the narrator in Genesis deals with it. But through this, he's building this picture of the primacy of Melchizedek. Now, this is important. If you're a Jew, your number one Jew is Abraham. Okay, so whenever you're going to build an argument, if you're going to build a really good argument, you're going to start with Abraham if you can. If you can't, you're going to start with Moses. So this author does something very interesting. He says, I'm going to predate Abraham with Melchizedek. So you have this whole idea of the Jewish people he's writing to who are in danger of drifting back into Judaism receive this letter who says, your ultimate patriarch received a blessing from a priest of righteousness, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and your patriarch, who is the greatest person in all of Jewish history, paid unto the priest a tithe. And he builds this argument, which we're not going to read. He says, the lesser never pays the greater a tithe or a blessing. Right? The lesser person doesn't bless the greater person. It's the other way around. And he says, and the greater person doesn't tithe unto the lesser person. It's the other way around. And so he says, we have duly established that Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, is superior and outside of and above our patriarch Abraham. And this is an important cornerstone he's building on, on, on his argument because he's about to really start shaking things up. And I want to make sure that the readers know that Melchizedek is really, really big. Because if he's big, then Christ is big. And so he continues, and we'll read uh, verses 11 and 12. This is where he starts to really hit him. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law, for on it, excuse me, for on the basis of it, the law was given to people. Why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? So what he says here is the priesthood in, in, in Jewish life descended not from Melchizedek, but they were all part of a tribe of Levi. Right? So there's 12 tribes that call themselves Jews. The tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. The high priests didn't, weren't simply Levites. Every high priest in Jewish history descended from Aaron. So there's this, all the high priests, in fact, Josephus, uh, as he's chronicling the history of the Jewish nation after the temple's destroyed, lists to his account all 83 high priests in the line of Aaron. He just says, just to demonstrate that it has always been this way. And the author says, no, it's a very intelligent argument. He says, now if everything was fine with the law, if the law of Moses and the teachings of the scribes and the prophets, if they were sufficient for salvation, why, when God would send somebody, would he liken them to a priest that is not from the tribe of Aaron, or the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron? He says, there must be a cause for the Lord to say, for I have made him a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, who is not even Jewish, not in the order of Aaron. And so he starts to say, build this argument that the answer, the response and the cure to the problem is not in the, in the rituals and the practices of Judaism. He says, within Aaron and all the priesthood, there's all these practices that's not where the answer is. It's coming from outside. All of the instructions that Aaron had to do about sacrifices 
and holy days and the way they were and cleanliness rules. He's saying something about that must not have been sufficient because God went outside and above it to get the answer. Because Christ is not in the order of Aaron. He is in the order of Melchizedek. So that's the first argument he makes, is Christ is outside and above. In fact, he says, to do this, God must be um, introducing a new covenant because he cannot, under the old covenant, do this. So it must be new. That's his first argument. Here's his second argument. I'm going to read verses 15 through 19. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. He's pretty much uh, tied the knot by this point. He says, so not only is Melchizedek outside of the law, okay? So the cure to the problem of mankind is not going to come from within Judaism, right? Because Christ is in the order of Melchizedek. But he says, there's another thing about this. He says, um, Aaron and the priestly line was dependent upon succession and ancestry, right? God, God regulated that Aaron would be priest. And when Aaron died, he regulated that his son would be priest. In fact, there's this, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's this mythical account in the book of Numbers. It's, it's, sometimes in Numbers, as you're trudging through, you find these accounts that just come to life. And it's the, the very end of their journey in the desert. The Jews, they've been there for 40 years. Almost everybody who can't enter the, in the promised land because of their sin has died off, except for Moses and Aaron. They're like the last two. You just imagine what it would be like to be those guys around the campfire. You know, everybody's waiting to go on the promised land, and they're still alive, right? Well, the Lord finally comes to, uh, to Aaron. Right? Time for a timely accident, right? The, the Lord comes to Moses, and he says, it's time for Aaron to die, because he's old and he's dying. And he says this. He says, take Aaron and his son on the top of the mountain. So they're in the land of Edom. They go up on the mountain, the top of Mount Nor, and they climb up this mountain. And they carry Aaron up there. I think it's the way it goes. They carry Aaron up to the mountain. And when they get up there, Aaron is in all his priestly splendor. He has his ephod and his gown and everything. And he stands there, and his son is right there. And Moses takes off piece by piece everything, every article of the priesthood and puts it on his son. He takes it off, and he puts it on his son. And he takes it off and puts it on his son. And when that's done, they leave. And Aaron stays on the mountain and dies. And that, to me, is just so powerful. It's mythical. It's just so palatable the way God says that this priestly line is going to pass down through the lineage of Aaron. And the writer here says that the priest in the order of Melchizedek, that is not how his lineage is established. He says he reigns and he is our high priest because of his indestructible life. In fact, he says, I not have made, not, he doesn't say I've made you priest in the order of Melchizedek. He has said I've made you priest forever in the order of Melchizedek on account of his indestructible life. Read with me here in verse 16. He says, One who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Both of these things combined give the, give the writer of Hebrews the opportunity to say, 
that Christ is not only outside of the confines of the law, but he's also outside of the curse of death. Right? All the priests, they were confined by the regulations of the law, which magnified sin, which were dealing with sin management. And they couldn't, and they couldn't escape it. There's, there's, no, there's no regulation or guidance on how to be a priest outside of Jewish law. They didn't exist. Right? And then they can't escape the curse either. Every priest in the line of Aaron is going to die. That's a fact. And, God, and, and, and the writer here says that God brought a priest who not only is outside and above the law of Moses, but is outside and above the curse, the very curse upon which all men are crying out for salvation from. And that's Melchizedek. And that's Christ, our King of Righteousness and our King of Peace. Which brings us to our therefore statement in verse 25. He says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he has always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. The writer of Hebrews is saying, this is the Christ you need. Now the problem that the... And, and here's where... So now we know... So now you know, right? That's, that's the Hebrew problem. That's the first level of complexity, right? Here's how it starts to become relevant to us. Here's the second level. That the Hebrew people... Their problem was not that they denied Christ, right? They believed in Christ. They believed and accepted he was a priest. The way that the writer here uses the idea of priesthood all throughout the book suggests that Christ as priest had become a fairly comfortable notion. What they had done, however, though, they were at risk of taking this Christ who is outside of the law and outside of the curse and outside and just greater and more magnificent. I mean, he's just building this huge image and they were going to take Christ and they were going to squish him down and force him back into Mosaic law. So they were still dealing with, well, Christ may have saved us, but there's probably still purpose for sacrifice. And Christ may have saved us, but maybe we ought to be circumcised. And Christ may have saved us, but there's cleanliness knowledge we ought to pay attention to. And he's saying, no, none of that. Christ isn't so small, he's bigger than that. And you need to move on from the immaturity of your Jewish teachings and push on into Christ, who is our high priest. And so that's what he's saying. And while that sounds Jewish, I think at the end of the day it's, it's very relevant. Because the whole problem here is they lack faith. They lack faith that Christ is sufficient. They lack faith that Christ has completed the problem. They lack faith that Christ is enough. I mean, that's the, that's the therefore there in verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who God <clears throat> has given him. So I've been wondering, how would that look today? Right, Because you and I aren't going to slide back into Judaism. We don't even know the first thing about sacrifices. Right? None of us have a goat or a lamb at our home for when we get home to make sure that the day is complete. Right? We don't deal with that, but we do constantly deal with fitting Christ into our worldview, which is what they're doing. Right? They have their Jewish worldview, and they're going to say, we're going to accept Christ, and then we're going to incorporate him in. In fact, there's a danger in contextualizing Christ, and it's very popular these days. Let's contextualize him. And the challenge there is that we end up fitting Christ into our worldview rather than blowing our worldview up and submitting ourselves to Christ. And so if the writer of Hebrews were writing us today, it wouldn't be called Hebrews. It would be like the letter to the North American, Western, mostly Judeo-Christian, generally white-collar church of Hokessin. Right? And if he was going to write, I, he probably would not use Melchizedek. 
But he would say something like this, I imagine. He would say, in your lives, somehow in Western America, there is this bizarre opinion or worldview that our spirituality is compartmentalized. Somehow in the West, we have this idea that we have our spirit life, right? our spiritual life here, and we have our family life here, and we have our work life here, and then there's our diet, and then there's this, and then there's that. And in fact, we talk about, you know, when I, I, I meet on occasion with uh, uh, some friends from, from grad school, and we, and we read scripture together, and many of them are Korean. And they, as they wrestle, they wrestle with the idea of mind, body, spirit. They're like, where, where do you get the feeling like they're separate? The, the Eastern notion is, is that the mind, body, and spirit are all linked. But we're so compartmentalizing, even in the way we think about things, that we compartmentalize Christ. And so that gives politicians some paradoxical way of saying that I try to keep my religious beliefs separate from my political opinions. That's paradoxical. And the writer of the letter to the North American, Western, Judeo-Christian, mostly generally white-collar church of Hokesson would say, how is that possible? He'd say, be careful that you do not drift away. He would say, watch out that you try to fit Christ into that jar called spirituality because it should infect everything. It's supposed to be across everything. It's all spiritual. All of life is spiritual. And be warned that you are not leaving, you are not moving on to maturity if you're not starting to gain a respect for the fact that Christ will not suffer to be put in a bottle. So that's one way it may be relevant to us, right? He wouldn't use Melchizedek. He would use that. Here's another way. He might say this. He might say to the church of Western North America, generally Judeo-Christian, mostly white-collar and he might say, you know what your problem is? Is you have this totally American notion of individualism. And he goes, there's no precedent in Scripture for it. The writer would say, I don't know where it's coming. It's coming from your pagan background. Somewhere before you have this idea that you have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you have this idea that you have rights and privileges and there's, there's, there's liberties that you have and that the state has responsibilities for you. And he would say things like, I doubt you've ever said the Pledge of Allegiance and meant it. Right? We say the Pledge of Allegiance and expect the United States to give us stuff because we just are totally infatuated with individualism. And it shows up in our church. He would say, you come to church, and you expect the church to feed you. He would say, you show up in, in your gatherings, and you wait to see how Christ is going to move in your life. And he'd say, the whole time, Christ is big, and, and, and you're waiting for him to see what he's going to do for you. He says, Christ has already solved it completely for you. This is your chance to move with him. Right? This, the Christian life is not a life of individualism. It's a life of community. At the very least, it's a life of community with Christ, where we are the lesser and he is the greater, where he blesses and we tithe, where he breaks bread with us and drinks wine with us and we worship. We don't sit here. And he would say, be, af- be very afraid and guard that you do not drift away from the true Christ. I'll give you one more and then we'll finish. Maybe he would write a letter like this to this Western North American, generally Judeo-Christian, mostly white-collar church in Hocus, and he would say, you know what your problem is? It's not Melchizedek, and it's not sacrifice. Your problem is you are absolutely enamored by the material world. And I, I, don't, I don't mean simply consumerism. I mean, we in the West are so infatuated by what we can see. We see salvation in the things we can touch and see. 
We've mastered, as far as anyone in the history of humanity has ever done, we have mastered the preservation and sustainment of life. And we're still totally dissatisfied about it. Right? What we can see, the objects, our intellectualism, the study, the readings, knowledge, you know, the pleasure we can see and grab from things, we're so tactile and we're so unspiritual. And the spirit world for us is kind of this, I don't know if it exists, I kind of hope there's a God, but we have this whole salvation kind of built in the way that we live our life out, the objects we own, the way we participate with the seen and visible world. And he would say, be careful that you don't drift away because Christ is invisible. It's spirit. And I'm calling you to a spiritual life with Christ, not to a life of the material world, not to a life that can be touched and seen, but to a life that can be felt and experienced. And that life is in Christ. For Christ is our high priest. I think this is our problem. I think our problem is the same as, as the problem in the church of the Hebrews. And it's not that we don't have faith in Christ. The Hebrews had faith in Christ, and we had faith in Christ. I think that's not at all the problem. I think the problem is, is that we have a lot of faith in a pretty small Christ. And Christ is calling us to say, all I want you to have is a little bit of faith in an indestructible, magnificent Christ. We have, we, we, we've reduced Christ to a point where there's, there's no real loss about our belief. And he's saying, blow me up to what I really am and just barely believe in me and see what happens. Dare to live into a magnificent Christ, even if ever so slightly, and he'll do more than if you wade into this tiny Christ in a bottle. It's just not worth, it's just not worth worshiping. And I think he's calling the same thing to the people here. He's saying, Christ is bigger than your worldview. Your Jewish worldview of sacrifices, he says, it's enough. He says, therefore, he is sufficient to completely save us. That's who our Christ is. This morning, we get to experience dedication and baptism, which are experiences that acknowledge a very large Christ. Right? In baptism, we, we, we confess through the observation and through the experience of baptism that we will perish, we are under the curse, and, and our only hope of salvation is to be buried with Christ and resurrected to new life. That is the work of a magnificent, indestructible Christ. And so I encourage you today to continue to worship as we go through our ordinances. Let me close this in prayer. After I pray, we're gonna, the praise team is going to come up and we'll continue to sing and we're going to bring the rest of our body into the room and we're going to celebrate through dedication and baptism. Uh, So I just encourage you not to see this as a break in worship, but as a transition in worship. Please pray with me. Lord, I just pray that you come on us as a people, Lord. I pray that you make us appreciate your splendor. Father, you help us to worship you, even if ever so slightly, in your true light, Lord, and not in the way that we would like to tail you or carve you or slice you up, Lord, but that at least we can in some way commune with the true Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.